Well, that was, this is only my second time here at uh, Parkview North, uh, but I have to say that was a wonderful display of family, cooperation, knowing, and meeting. Um, the last time I was here, uh, we were Heartland, and uh, my, so my central uh, responsibilities are at Central Campus, uh, but it's very good to be with you here. Um, yeah, this, this cold weather has reminded me um, of a fun story from when I was young. Now, uh, everyone knows that when it gets cold out and then it's also windy, uh, there's a sort of a weather term for how it feels colder, you know? You guys know what that is? Wind chill, okay. Well, until I was about maybe a pretty embarrassing age, maybe 18 or 20, I didn't know that it was wind chill. I thought it was windshield. And this made, this made perfect sense to me because if you're ever in a car and it's cold, it's sort of cold, and then you touch the windshield, you touch a piece of glass, it's even colder. So, made perfect sense, windshield. Uh, it's, you know, and that got me thinking about other things in my youth that, uh, that didn't quite make sense, but, you know, they did when I was a kid. Have you guys, anyone ever seen Pinocchio? Okay, I'm sure many of you have. Now, now I've got the nephews, I've got a baby now, Jack, and I've sort of revisited some of those movies from my childhood, especially Pinocchio. Pinocchio stuck out. Anyone ever gone back and seen Pinocchio as an adult? Fairly terrifying movie. Not, it's, it's not a real happy story. He's a toy, he gets turned into a boy, he's immediately sold into slavery, he goes to Pleasure Island. It's very, it's very frightening. Uh, but it's funny how time and development can change your perspective on things. Uh, those, those examples are really trivial and kind of silly. Uh, but when it comes to the Christmas story, the stakes are raised. For many, if not all of us, I hope for all of us actually, uh, the idea of Christmas is washed in warm feelings and nostalgia. Uh, we just put up our Christmas tree. It was about six feet tall, six feet wide. It was amazing. Uh, we needed that. We have a lot of ornaments. Um, and it's, that's wonderful. It's wonderful. But it's also dangerous. Because, after all, the story of Jesus coming into the world is the story of, of the king. It's the story of, of God becoming a man. And have we gotten the details right? Have we misremembered, like, I, I messed up Windshield, you know, and Pinocchio? Do, do we know the characters and what they mean? Over the next four weeks, so I guess three weeks now, uh, we're going to be working through this series called the Nativity Series. And the idea is uh, that it's almost as if we're sort of observing a nativity set. I'm sure many of you have these at home. We just got one that's like child size. We came down, downstairs and Jack had one. Uh, he was eating it. It was the donkey. So he's enjoying it. He's very spiritual already, clearly. Uh, but it's as if we're sort of taking, taking up each little character, each little figure, and, and sort of examining the scene from their perspective. And so we'll be working through the gospel accounts, especially in Matthew and Luke. And as we take up each character, we'll be saying, uh, sort of asking the question, what does this character and their perspective on the story of Christmas, what, is, what do they teach us about God's salvation? What do they teach us about God's salvation? And the big question for us today, because we'll be dealing with the character of Mary, is what is the gospel according to Mary? What is the gospel according to Mary? And sort of that's sort of the, this, the, the title of this, this sermon. I hope to show you that Mary teaches us three key insights into God's coming kingdom. Uh, and to put them shortly, Jesus is the king, trust is the key, and humility is the condition. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I'm thankful that we can come, confess our sins, hear your word, 
and be transformed to, more, to look more like your son. I pray that through hearing your word today that we would begin to understand what it means that you have, you have come. You came. You came as a baby. You came to save us. And, and help us to, to imitate the, the faith and love of, of Mary, who saw that, that the coming of the kingdom was not for the great and the powerful, but for the least of these, and help us to count our, ourselves among them. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Now, the first thing that we learn from Mary about God's salvation is, is this. Jesus brings God's salvation, and therefore we should reject false saviors. We see this in Luke 1, chapter, 30, or chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. We'll sort of work through this text uh, through the two main scenes where Mary's featured. The first one being where she meets with the angel called Gabriel, and the second one where she sings a beautiful song called, often called the Magnificat. So here we go. Uh, Jesus brings God's salvation. It says in Luke 1, 31 through 33, if you want to whip out your Bible, we'll be in Luke 1 the whole time. It says, the angel comes to Mary and says, Angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Wow. It's an easy passage to sort of float over. Okay, it kind of feels like religious mumbo-jumbo, sort of, okay, the throne of whoever. Uh, Often we use the idea of a king sort of flippantly because we don't have a king, we have a president. He presides, he doesn't rule. Um, Or we talk about, you know, LeBron, we call him King James, you know. But, But what does this mean? It's, it's not mumbo-jumbo. It's not, it's, this, is, this is something serious. He comes to take the place of his father David on the, the throne. He's, he's come for a throne, and he's come as a baby. See, see we often think the story of Christmas begins uh, on, I don't know, December 1st, because that's when our Advent calendar starts. But according to the Bible, the story of Christmas starts in Genesis 1. See, Jesus comes to us as the climax of a story that has been written since time began. It's a story that we're living in now, and it's a story of God's kingdom come to earth. The kingdom of God, this whole, whole idea of, of Jesus coming to occupy a throne, a, a kingdom, is an idea that was a, a complete reality. It was not just sort of a pie in the sky. It was a total reality for the people of Israel, for the people to whom Luke was writing. And so to say to them that Jesus is the one who has come to take up that kingdom, it meant everything. When they read this, they would gasp. The kingdom of God was a reality that they proclaimed over themselves in their national story. We see this in, in 2 Chronicles 20. I'm just going to pick a few examples to show you. You could pick, there's probably a hundred more that I could have picked. Uh, 2 Chronicles 20, it was a key truth that they remembered and they celebrated in song, just like we do today. Uh, Psalm 93, we might, uh, last week we sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel. Jesus is the come, king who comes and releases them from captivity. After the nation of Israel was carried off into exile, they dreamed about the day that God's kingdom would be restored. See in Daniel 2, 44, the prophets say, one day God is going to come and he is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He says he will, Daniel 2, 44. And, and Israel will once again be this beacon of salvation 
to all people, to all nations, that they can come and see what it looks like for, for God to once again reign on earth and set all things right. This, this isn't religious mumbo-jumbo. Uh, this is the rule and reign of God come. Now, we miss this because we put, it, we put Jesus sort of in the religious box. He, he really cares about Sundays, uh, it seems. You know, he cares about a few aspects of my life, but he's not really interested in, you know, Monday mornings, sports, uh, you know, my office, politics, <laughs> stuff like that. But no matter who you are and where you are, all of us realize that something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. At least implicitly, we all recognize that we need, we need, some, we need something to change. We need to put it in a word, even, even if you might not use this word, we all know that we need salvation. We know it. And so we look to those things that we think maybe Jesus doesn't care about. We look to the sports and the, the office and the, and the politics, all of that, to look to, for it to bring what God has promised to bring through his son. And, and this is part of the danger of Christmas. See, the salvation of God that Jesus comes to bring is about justice, the justice we realize we, we need. God will one day, when he brings his kingdom once and for all, he will bring about perfect justice. He will set every injustice right. He will end all oppression. The salvation of God is about peace, that God will one day end all strife and war forever. Salvation of God is about love and joy that can't be stopped through death. The salvation of God is about God restoring the world that he created perfectly. And, and that desire is imprinted on our hearts. And I want you to see this morning, Parkview Church, Jesus has come to do just that. He has started his revolution in a manger in Bethlehem, and he will bring it to fruition, and one day he will set the world to rights. This is the salvation that whether you're looking for it or not, this is the salvation that has come in King Jesus. Now, um, one of the key things to, to get straight here is I've just sort of unpacked uh, thousands and thousands of years of Hebrew history that's culminating in the person of Jesus. And, and the point being, in order to understand it, you're going to need to understand this whole story. That, that the story of Jesus doesn't start, it started way back here, and he's, it's come to a climax here. Not it start, have you guys ever heard of the story? War and Peace. Famous novel. Uh, many of you probably heard of it. It's sort of infamous for being long and complicated. Uh, hundreds of characters, lots of stuff going on. It's got 360 chapters. Now imagine if you were to pick up this book, flip all the way to the end, and read chapter 360. Don't read the, anything else. You didn't do the Wikipedia. You didn't do the Spark Notes. You just, 360. Let's just go. I'm just going just gonna to do it. Now, would anyone in this room expect that they would understand even a lick of that, of that story by reading only the last chapter? Of course not. So let's not do the same thing with Jesus, right? I, I'm guessing when you guys sat down for Thanksgiving dinner uh, a couple weeks ago, none of you just loaded up your whole plate with cranberry sauce, right? You got a little bit of turkey, you got a little bit of cranberry sauce, you got a little bit of the greens, you got a little bit of everything. We need, we need Genesis to teach us what it means that God is the creator and king. We need Leviticus to show us what it means that God requires holiness in his people. We need the Psalms to show us the whole breadth of human emotion. We, we need the whole Bible. Drink it in. This is our story. 
Now, uh, as I said, one of the dangers is that we tend to take Jesus out of the story where he belongs and, and put him into uh, stories where he doesn't really belong, uh, like puzzle pieces that kind of fit. You know, you sort of, you sort of jam it in if you get frustrated, but it doesn't quite fit. Uh, one of the prevailing stories that we tend to uh, adopt is the idea that the, the main problem in my life is that I'm not that happy, right? And salvation becomes sort of salvation by self-help. This is, this is sort of the broadest, the, the, most, the most increasing uh, literature books in, in, in America are sort of the self-help, you know, techniques and stuff like this. And so we can tend to cast Jesus in this sort of self-help guru mode, right? Where Jesus comes and he offers salvation by way of keeping me from, from unhappiness. But this puts Jesus at the center of a story about us. And that's, I don't know if you guys, I've tried that. Boy, it's miserable. It doesn't work real well. Jesus says, come, be, come play a bit part in the story of the kingdom of God and you'll find who you're, you're really supposed to be. It might not always make you happy. And in fact, if, if you read your Bible and when you find things about Jesus that don't make you very, very happy and you sort of go, I didn't like that, not a good devotional today, uh, it, it, this might be the case. Put Jesus in the center of your story. He's trustworthy. Make him your king. Now, in Jesus' time, uh, we also have to apply it this way. In Jesus' time, one of the main temptations for how, we're, how are we going to, the question they would ask is, how is God's salvation going to come? How are we going to bring in, back in, you know, God ruling and reigning and, and everything going back to how it should be? One of the main temptations was, okay, here's what we need to do. The main problem is Rome is oppressing us, and the main solution is let's have an armed revolt, Right? And so they said, let's, you know, if we gather up enough people, we can seize power, and we'll put the right person on the throne, and then we'll, is this starting to sound familiar? Okay. One of the main temptations is to put Jesus into a story of salvation that's salvation by political conquest. As long as we get the right people in office, as long as we do this, uh, things will be solved. Now, uh, there can be good in that. There's no doubt. However, if we locate Jesus in a story where we get salvation through politics, uh, we will end up with a counterfeit Jesus. We'll end up with a counterfeit Jesus. So be wary of locating Jesus within that story. Uh, what he came to do, you, we have liberal ideas, we have conservative ideas, but let the text rule you when you consider who is this coming king. Keep in mind, a king, you know what a king is? We bow to a king. We kneel to a king. We, we're used to presidents, right? Jesus is a king. And of course, the last thing, I'll just say it again, read your whole Bible. It, it is worthwhile. Read about Jesus everywhere uh, you look. The kingdom that's coming through him, uh, the kingdom that comes to fruition in him. So this first thing that we read and learn about Mary, about the salvation of God, is that Mary teaches us that Jesus brings God's salvation and reminds us to reject false saviors, counterfeit Jesus says. Now, the second insight that we learn about Mary, uh, that, or that Mary teaches us about God's salvation, is that true faith trusts God's promises, so seek nothing more. True faith trusts God's promises, so seek nothing more, meaning nothing beyond his promise alone, his word alone. And the way that we see this is uh, Luke making a sort of a compare and contrast case study between two characters in Luke 1. The first one and I'm setting this up because it will be significant for point three as well, is Zechariah. The first character is Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is the first story that Luke tells in Luke 1, 
Uh, he tells us about this priest named Zechariah and the division that he comes from, his wife, and it turns out that Zechariah is not able to have a child. Um, an angel comes and says, good news, you're going to be able to have a child. In fact, he, this angel comes to him in the temple. He's offering incense. He's only going to do this once in his lifetime. Wow, it's an incredible experience. And this is paralleled by Mary, who also has an angel come and also shares good news about it. We see a number of connections that Luke makes to make this point. Uh, both narratives begin with similar explanations of each. We see this in verse 5 and 26. I think it'll pop up on the screen because I'm just going to run through these real quick. Both are visited by the angel Gabriel. Both receive messages about a miraculous birth. They're told in similar ways. Uh, both respond with perplexity. Both sing songs of praise to God. And Luke draws these similarities so that we can take a look. Okay, here's Zechariah. Here's Luke. He tells our story so similarly so that we can compare and contrast. So the main contrast that we see t- between them, well, the first one, is this. Their response to the good news of the angel. In, verses one, or in chapter 1, 13 through 17, the angel declares this amazing news to Zechariah. So not only is this, he's going to finally have the child he's always been praying for, uh, but it's going to be this amazing figure that's really important uh, throughout history. It says this in verses 13 through 17, if you look with me there. Uh, it says, The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Right? Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son. You, you shall call his name John. Hear how that sounds exactly what I was saying from Mary, right? And you will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice. He'll be great before the Lord. And he must not drink strong wine. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, and so on. And and Zechariah says to the angel, how shall I know this? How shall I know this? Now in, in verse 34, let's compare. In verse 34, We have Mary's response. Mary responds to the angel to what I read you just before. Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? How shall I know, or or, how shall I know this, Zechariah says, how will this be? What's the difference? Now, it's it's hard to sort of take uh, one string of, you know, one statement and say, well, and draw a huge point from it. Uh, but we learn from later in the passage that Zechariah's response is faithless. Uh, in fact, he's, he's cursed with, with blind, or not blindness, with muteness. He can't talk. Uh, some people think he can't even hear uh, because they have to write on a tablet to, to communicate with him uh, until the baby is born. And Mary immediately responds with exultant praise to God. How will this be? How shall I know? And it seems, and most people seem to agree, that the difference is Zechariah is saying, how shall I know? Give me a sign. Give me some validation. Give me something that I can every day sort of remember and hold on to. Give me something. Now, I want you to enter into the deep irony of Zechariah asking for this, okay? So here's Zechariah, faithful man, priest in Jerusalem, loves God, serves God, but has no child, and he's been praying for probably about since the time they realized they were, you know, barren, that he's, he really wants a child. So finally, wow, He's chosen. He's a priest. He gets chosen. The lot falls on Zechariah. Wow. So he gets to go into the temple, the secret holy place that no one else gets to go. He only gets to go there once in his lifetime. So it's like the best, it's like birthday times 100. You go in there and you burn an incense and then boom, angel appears, okay? And says to him, Zechariah, you 
I've been listening. God's been listening. He heard, you want a baby? Okay, I'm, I'm going to give it to you. And not only that, it's going to be this great. It's going to be awesome. And after all that, Zechariah says, well, I saw the angel, and I saw that I was, while I was doing the thing in the temple, but can you give me a sign? Really? <laughs> you, that wasn't enough of a sign? The angel appearing. You fell on your face, and, and that wasn't enough, right? Now, Mary receives sort of a similarly startling message from the angel. Look, you know, you haven't been with your husband, but you're going to be, and, and really, it was kind of, it, it wasn't bad news to Mary, but the reality was she was, she was going to have to bear a child out of wedlock, and you know, you know, if you've been from a small town, look, you, no matter how much you explain, no one's going to believe you, and you're going to have this very shameful thing. And yet, what does she say? How, she says, and this is just beautiful, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Just let it be according to your word. I don't need a sign. I, don't, I trust you. Now, while it's easy to look at Zechariah, angel in the temple, giving him the, the news he's been waiting for his whole life, and say, oh, wow, I'm glad I'm not like Zechariah. I'm like Mary, obviously. Zechariah, and the same flaw that's in Zechariah, is in every single one of us in this room. I know it's in my heart. See, we fool ourselves by thinking, if only I had a little bit more proof, then I would trust God. If only God, I don't know, maybe just sort of an answer, a really clearly answered prayer, right? Uh, maybe, maybe even something simple, like maybe if I just had way more joy in my, in my Bible reading times, then I would know he's really there. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, we, we long for healing or forgot to do something in, in one of our relatives or something like that. Then I would adopt Mary's posture, just according to your word, right? This humble posture of trust in God's word. But that the truth is, God has given us all that we need to trust him. True faith trusts God's promises. It seeks nothing more. It doesn't seek a sign. It, it takes him right at his word. And, and don't you feel that, the, I mean, doesn't this just make sense to you intuitively? Isn't this how you want your words to be treated, right? Uh, when a friend asks, you know, hey, will you, do, you don't ask, give me a sign that you will do this thing, you know? No, you want, you want to be taken at your words. How much more does God? Let it be for me according to your word, Mary says. True faith will be displayed or denied when the chips are down, when everything else is stripped away, and we just have to say, will we take God at his word or will we not? Now, by understanding the whole story of the Bible that has come to climax in Christ, not, not begun, but we can look back and see God has been so faithful to his word. He is so trustworthy. Now, if anyone here has young children, and now I've got the nephews and I've had this experience, you've, you've probably had it too, uh, where you're hanging out with the kid, they go to the bathroom, good, you hear the flush, excellent, not hearing the water run from the faucet after the flush, and so you have a question, right? Come out of the bathroom, hey, did you wash your hands? Yeah, of course. Did you use soap? Yep, of course. Okay, and then the key moment. Why don't you come over here, I'm just going to smell them. Right? I just want to, I'm just going to make sure for everyone's safety. Okay. Now what happened there, right? This young person, I hope young person, uh, has, does not have the track record of success and faithfulness in this particular area. Maybe they're very trustworthy otherwise. Uh, but where you have to say, you know what, why don't you just, I'm just going to give it a quick and then we'll be good. Now, 
God has given us everything we need to trust, to take him utterly at his word. We, we need no sign. We need no test. We have seen his faithfulness, especially if we've, we've dwelt in his word and understand who he is. There's no sign yet. We, we can take him at his word. And so I want to challenge you. If you're here and you're questioning the claims of Christianity, if you're wondering, can this, is this really true? Or maybe you have a friend who's in that position. Uh, gather the evidence. And, you know, we want you to come ask your questions, but I also want to remind you, Zechariah teaches us that coming to faith is not just about collecting all the evidence, adding it up, and finding out whether it's, it's true. I, I want to encourage you that if you truly want to see whether, whether this thing is real, you must, in addition to doing that, you must also ask for faith to believe the evidence that God has already given. Zechariah show us, shows us, and in fact, I think every one of us can bear witness in our own lives, that the ultimate problem is not that we don't have enough evidence, it's, it's that we don't believe it, right? <laughs> Jesus, Jesus rose from the grave. Do we believe it? Jesus rose from the grave. What can he not do in our lives? If you're here and you do trust Christ, uh, you would say, I'm a Christian. I want you to realize some of you, uh, I, honestly, I would put, maybe put myself in this category right now. You, you feel that you are in a rut. You do not feel the nearness of God. You open your Bible in the morning faithfully and you read the words and they're great words, but you don't feel the sense of his nearness. And you need to know he has not left you. He's not hiding from you. And in fact, these moments where it is difficult are the times where we most need to press into uh, those, those practices, waking up, reading, when it, when it doesn't feel like it's doing anything. This is, C.S. Lewis described this as, if you've ever seen a giraffe and it, it, it's had a baby and they're supposed to stand up within an hour of being born and they have to eventually let them fall a few times so that they can build their muscles. If, if the mama giraffe just sort of holds the baby up, they'll actually be stunted. It, it may be, and I think I'm convinced of this, this is that, that God does this so that we can strengthen our muscles of faith and especially to, to whet our appetite for faith. Right? I, I think, I'm, I don't have any Bible verse for this, but <laughs> I think one of God's favorite prayers to answer is, Lord, help me trust you more. I, I, I don't trust, I, I don't know if I believe it, but help me. Help me. Fan, fan that, that fire that, into flame, the, the faith that God has given you, and ask him for more. So the second, second insight that, that Mary gives us into God's salvation is that true faith trusts God's promises, takes him at his word, and, and seeks nothing more. And this last point, this last thing that we see, this last insight that Mary gives us into God's salvation is that God's salvation is for the least likely. The least likely. So embrace your poverty. Embrace your poverty. We see this uh, in Mary's beautiful song she sings. It's a very frustrating passage for me to look at as a preacher. You know, I've got like five, ten minutes to... Uh, anyway, but I've got to read it. So uh, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. 
He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. If you were to sort of distill this down, uh, one of the main points that we see is this. uh, This is a story of God's mercy for those who are not likely. Uh, It's God's salvation for the least likely. Here are the people in Mary's song who end up sort of on the top in God's kingdom. Servants, those who fear God, those of humble estate, multiple times she makes that point, and the hungry. Hmm. Here are the people who end up opposed by God, the proud, the mighty, the rich. This, this third insight also comes to us from, uh, from, from Luke's case study, sort of between Zechariah and Mary. Because when Luke's audience read Luke chapter 1, they said, okay, so we're reading the story about God's kingdom coming. Uh, they, and you were to ask that person, okay, how do you think God's salvation is going to come? They would have said, well, obviously, God's salvation will come through a respected old person, right? Uh, not a young, unwed, pregnant person. <laughs> They've said, obviously the kingdom is going to come through a man, they would have said, not, not a woman. Uh, a woman's testimony couldn't even be offered as evidence in court at that time. How is she, and she's going to be the, they would have said, obviously not. Obviously, they would have said, uh, the kingdom will come through Jerusalem, right? The city of God, God's chosen place, Zion, you know, we got all the songs about him. Not Nazareth. I've never heard of Nazareth. In every case, Luke wants us to see, God has not chosen the obvious candidate. God has utterly turned the world's ideals of what it means to be blessed, of what it means to be favored by God. I mean, look at that list. To reveal that when God works, he doesn't need help. He needs humility. When we say least likely, we're keying in on Mary's humility, her recognition uh, that she is not, of all the people through whom the Savior could come, she says, I, who am I, you know? The, I'm just a humble servant, right? Now, uh, one thing we need, to, we need to say about this word, humble, uh, for us, it's a virtue, right? Humility, good, right? In our society, generally, you know, that's good. we sort of have this image of the quarterback who's running off the field, he just threw for 5,000 yards, 26 touchdowns in one game, and he comes off the field, and here comes the reporter, and he says, Billy, Billy, how'd you do it? And Billy says, oh, it was nothing, and that's sort of humility, you know, because he, he didn't say, well, I'm great, obviously. Uh, but, he says, you know, but he's exalted, you know. But in Jesus' time, to call someone humble was not a compliment. And that, we miss this because of that, because we've absorbed it as a virtue. But to call someone humble is to, to say, obviously, God has not favored you. You're, you're not important. It, it, it would have been taken with the verb, not to be humble, but to humiliate To call someone humble was an insult. Obviously, you have no resume, no power, you have nothing to offer, you're humble. And they would have said, obviously, the favor of God is not upon you. And yet, the image we have of humility is this. Mary, maybe 15 years old, pregnant out of wedlock, poor, at this point homeless, powerless. That's the example held up to us. Here's who we should put on stage, Mary. And as believers in the gospel of grace, this should be enormously encouraging 
because we should feel a deep kinship with the person of Mary. No, no one needed to remind Mary that she was humble, right? Every day she walked out into the village square, she, she remembered that she was humble. But God is honored, and we find our proper place in God's story of salvation when we see that we are not the most likely. In fact, like Mary, we're the least likely people for salvation to come to or come through. God is not drafting his team according to the world's standards. Now, why does he do it this way? Why does he choose the least likely? Why does, why does he want Mary's, right? Why doesn't he want, you know, someone better, someone, someone less, you know, someone with some influence, someone with some power? Now, did you know uh, that between Michael Jordan, you guys heard of him? Okay, a cultural example for you. Michael Jordan and uh, LeBron James, 15 trips to the NBA Finals, nine championships. How many times did one of their coaches win Coach of the Year? The answer is one. One time, 15 trips. Now, why is that? Who needs a good coach when you've got the best player in the world on your team? Right? See, God takes, instead of, instead of being like that, you know what God does? He takes the team of, you know when you went at recess and you'd pick teams and then there were people left at the end who no one wanted? They said, if this person's on our team, it's over. The game is already over. Let's just, and so, okay, you're the last one left, so go over there, stand over there, and do, you know, whatever. God picks the people, and so that... He wants those people. So at the end of the day, when people say, what happened here? All they can say is, uh, coach of the year. Yeah, obviously. This guy's blind. This guy shoots at the wrong hoop every time. This guy only has one leg. How did they do it? You know, but they're putting everyone else to shit. How did this happen? This is the least like, so that at the end of the day, no one can say, well, of course they won. They had LeBron. All they can say is, wow. I mean, how did this happen? Obviously, I have no idea what he's doing, but he knows what he's doing. Only God could put together this kind of team of people like us in this room and, and make something beautiful out of it. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, a famous Welsh preacher in London in the 40s through the 60s, and he would have people come in who wanted to be church members, and uh, he often, not every time, but he would often ask them just one question. He would say, are you a Christian? You want to be a member, you got to be a Christian. Are you a Christian? And he, he often sort of had one of two responses from that question. Uh, in the first case, people would say, and this would worry him, they would say, of course I'm a Christian. Haven't you seen me? I'm in church every Sunday. I'm doing the stuff you're asking me to do. Uh, it's, of course, do you know who my parents are? You know, I was baptized. And I, of course I'm a Christian. How dare you even ask me? You know, that sort of attitude. And he said, that, that, that was troubling to me. And then there was sort of another group of people who would come in. He would say, are you a Christian? And their eyes would just fill with wonder because they would... I don't know how it happened. I mean, I know who I was before, and I know what, somehow, I mean, I know what I've done, but God has, he said, okay, yeah, you, you're on my team. I, I don't know how it happened. It's amazing. And yet, yeah, I guess, yeah, I'm a Christian. Somehow God did it. God did it. I, me, even me, he did it. Now, how do we have this, the heart of Mary that says, although I'm your humble servant, you know, salvation has come to me in the sense of wonder. Well, nothing will defeat a, a sort of, of course, I'm a Christian attitude, like being in deep community. Who asks you tough questions and helps you see that you are like Zechariah, not like Mary? Who does that for you right now? If the answer is no one, danger. Danger. Pride is a vine that thrives in isolation. 
Join a community group. Find people that will ask you those questions. Get those people in your life for their sake, for your sake, uh, for God's kingdom's sake. The second is, uh, I I invite you to cultivate a sense of spiritual poverty that mirrors Mary's sort of practical life circumstance poverty, right? Um, And I I don't ask you to do this just so you can sort of feel bad about yourself and make that sort of a Christian virtue of just like, you know, feeling bad. Uh, But rather, uh, that's not the point. The point is, that, so that when we look at Jesus who has saved us the least likely, we can truly, we can glorify the God who saves wretches like us, right? There, uh, you know, you've, you've probably heard the story of Jesus and he asked Simon, right, which one loves me more, the one whom I've forgiven a little or the one who I've forgiven a lot? He says, the one who's been forgiven much, right, will love much. If we want to love God, let's realize our poverty and all that God has done out of love for us. So Mary's third insight into God's salvation is that God's salvation is for the least likely. People like us, so embrace your poverty. Don't push it away. Uh, Don't shine yourself up. Embrace it. If we were to sort of synthesize all this together and answer our question that we began with, what is the gospel according to Mary? What does she teach us? It would be something like, like Mary, grasp God's salvation by trusting God's promises and embracing true humility. Now, when we look at the life of Mary, uh, we can't just wrap it up there because while Mary had uh, her only vantage point on Jesus was sort of looking forward and what would he be at this point, right? But we have the privilege of being able to look back and say, what did he do? What, what was he? Now, Mary showed us, and this is what we learned, Mary showed us incredible faith when she said to this angel who came and gave her good but sort of terrifying news. She said, your will be done. Let it be according to your word. Now, Jesus showed us the fullness of this when in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was deciding whether he would save least likely people like us, his father said, this is the only way it can be done. And what did he say? Your will be done. Jesus shows us the fullness of this. Mary showed us radical humility, we learn this, by recognizing her own lowly estate and how how she was the least likely. Jesus showed us the fullness of this by recognizing his exalted position. He truly was exalted, Right? and yet giving it all up for us. See, at the heart of the gospel is this. God comes to us in Jesus, not as a king who conquers, but as a lamb who is slain. And then he comes as a baby, and he is coming again. The Advent season that we're in, let us look forward and join Mary in looking forward to Jesus, the one true and coming king. Will you pray with me?